You are listening to Pastor Mike Greiner of Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you will be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled, Jesus Gives, based on Luke 19, 11-17, recorded on Sunday, June 12, 2016. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Mike as he preaches. Well, the subject of today's message is stewardship. Stewardship is not a word that most people use. I bet you, you know, there's a couple words you learn as a Christian. That if you, if you weren't a Christian, you hear this word, you're like, what does that mean? For example, I became a Christian as an adult, and people started telling me that I was going to start fellowshipping. And I don't know what fellowshipping is. I wasn't academically smart enough to know I could even get one of those in a school, so what's a fellowship? And then I quickly learned that's a, that's a Jesus word for friendship and hanging out and being together in community. Well, stewardship is another word I never hear anybody use. I mean, do you, seriously, do you know of anyone who uses the word stewardship outside of a Christian context? I don't. So what is stewardship and why are we talking about it? Well, over the next two years, we gather together in many ways that are too tedious to describe, to determine where should we go next as a church. And we were convinced that God would have us really do nothing at all, sit still for a couple of years, and focus on the important things. And it wasn't the thought of one or two leaders, it was the thought of literally dozens and dozens of people in the church. Um, and, and the focus, though, as you know, as you wait on the Lord, you don't do nothing, so what should we do? Well, we're asking God, bring people to us. And what we'll focus on, though, while God does the the heavy lifting, is prayer, evangelism, discipleship, and stewardship. And so we're in the near the 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 back half of a sermon series on the subject of what we want to concentrate on for the next two years. Uh, That catches you up if you're newer to Harvest. This is we're beginning our uh, a few messages on stewardship. So what is stewardship? Well. If, if we're going to work with a word that normal, normally we don't use anywhere else, we need to start with a definition. I'm going to give you a working definition. I say working, when you say working definition, that means I don't really know if it says everything it should say. That's why you put the word working in there. Um, so, uh, but I can say this. The definition I'm going to give you is stewardship, but stewardship has more to it than this. But in any case, here's my offering to you as a working definition. Stewardship is about maximizing God's return on His investment in you. In the following three categories, your body, your time, and your possessions. Stewardship is about maximizing God's return on His investment in you in the following three categories, your body, your time, and your possessions. You might have figured out if it's your body, your time, and your possessions, that's pretty much everything, I know. A few notes on this definition, and you need to pay close attention here because the next couple of sermons, I'm not going to repeat this definition, but it's the one I'm working with when I use the word, so you have to remember it, okay? That's your job. Um, I'm saying that with tongue-in-cheek because I don't remember long definitions myself. Write it down, maybe. Note one on this definition. A steward is someone who works with someone else's stuff. A steward doesn't work with his own stuff. If you're maximizing the investment you make in yourself, you're not a steward. You're just a person doing what you should do. A steward takes someone else's stuff. 
There's a person in this church who, if he ever asked to borrow your car, let him. Let him. Because when he borrows a car, he cleans it. (laughs) Dirty it up first. Let it go. He puts gas in it. He even puts that shiny stuff on the wheels. He treats your car, he stewards your property very, very well. There's some people you won't lend to, right? You've lent to them before, and you know that first you may not get it back. If you do get it back, it's not in a very good shape. That's not good stewardship. But this guy, I mean, you should see he borrowed Kevin's old truck. And if you saw Kevin's, on the lot, that, that thing is, is a beater. It's, been, it's paid its dues. But it has really shiny wheels right now. The, the tires, I mean. The tires are very shiny. 1 Corinthians 6.20. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You don't belong to you. Your stuff doesn't belong to you. Your time doesn't belong to you. And your body doesn't belong to you. You have been purchased by someone else. So you are managing someone else's stuff. That's what a steward does. Second, note two, but a steward is not a storage facility manager. You know, a storage facility manager, if they do it right, you pay them a little money, they put their stuff in your facility, you keep the rats away, you keep it dry, and you do nothing with it at all. And, and, and we're not, that's not good stewardship to God. He doesn't want you to just hold on to his stuff. Third, a steward is not managing his self-supply. He doesn't give you a body, time, and possessions so that you have what you need to get by. In other words, if if, uh, I just went on a trip to Alaska, had some cash. I thought I'm going to be here this long. I have this much cash. If I want to be able to, I have to think, what am I going to spend money on? What am I going to share? What am I going to buy? And if I'm going to be there nine days or however long I was, how much do I have to have the last couple of days to cover things? How much am I going to spend on the rental car, on the gas? And so I'm, you, you think about, you're wise if you don't spend it all the first day. And you might think, well, that's stewardship. No, that isn't. That's managing my self-supply. That, Retirement is managing your self-supply. It's wise to plan as much as you can without getting crazy. But if you think God gave you everything he gave you so you could make sure you end your life with using up what you have, you're missing it. That's self-supply. That's all that is. That brings no return to the one who gave you. Third note. Fourth note. Excuse me. Salvation does not come by good stewardship. When we talk about stewardship, we're not saying, do these things and God will save your soul. If you could do things and God save your soul, there would have been no cross. The central truth that's always worthy of being represented is that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If God did not become man himself, live a perfect life himself, and lovingly offer himself as a substitute payment for my sin and yours, there would be no salvation for anyone. And salvation is received always as a free gift. 
The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And I don't want anyone to think as I talk about stewardship that, uh, that they're saying, well, he's saying if I behave well, if I get this part right, I'm getting to heaven. That's not the point at all. It can look that way because bad stewardship looks like not being saved. But good stewardship is really just the job of the children of the family of God. Once adopted to the family, you show it by glorifying the Father's name, and that's stewardship. So once again, our working definition, one more time. Stewardship is about maximizing God's return on his investment in you. Maximizing his return on his investment. If you gave a stockbroker $1,000 and says, bring me money back, maximizing that is he brings you more than $1,000 and as much as he possibly could in the time he had with the instructions he was given. Stewardship is about God's maximizing his return on his investment in you in the following three life categories, your body, your time, and your possessions. And I hope that after a while it will go without saying that any form of church-going Christianity that involves you simply taking, 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 and not being maximized upon by God is not a biblical form of Christianity. All right. That's the introduction for the next two sermons, too. So try to remember it, okay? (laughs) Now I don't have to say it again. Let's jump into our text. We're in Luke chapter 19, if you'd open your Bible there. Luke 19, open your electronic Bibles, your paper Bibles, or if you've memorized the entire book of Luke, turn in your brain to Luke chapter 19. One of the longest parables Jesus gives, and he gives a lot of parables that are very similar to this in nature, and in what he has to say, it must be a very important subject to him. Luke chapter 19 in the New Testament, Luke 19, starting in verse 11, and Please note, before he gets into the parable, he gives the reason why, the, 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 Luke writes the reason why he gives the parable. And parables normally have one big idea in them, and the context often tells you what that idea is. So you've got to pay attention to see what is Jesus trying to say. And here it is right here in verse 11. Jesus heard these things, and he proceeded to tell a parable. Why? Here's why. It's the key to understanding what. Because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. The people following Jesus thought, the kingdom of God is going to be here soon. What that would mean to them is, he's going to clean up this mess. He's going to stop all the sin and abuse of people. He's going to get rid of Roman oppression. He's going to usher in a kingdom where God's ways rule, and it's peaceful and happy and good. And this makes this message very applicable to us today. Who here today wouldn't say... Uh, is God's kingdom close because he needs to come and clean up this mess, right? Well, that's what they were thinking, and they thought it was going to happen within days. And he was going to let them know it wasn't, and this parable was how he did it. He said, therefore, verse 12, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. So you have a very wealthy man, a nobleman. He has uh, people under him. He goes away to receive a kingdom. The kingdom that he's receiving is from where he left. That's the point. And I don't know how this works. It's a parable. The details aren't given. But he goes away to get the land. Maybe to talk to a greater king and say, I want that kingdom. Let's secure my land for me. In any case, he goes away. He leaves. Verse 13, he calls 10 of his servants. He's, He's a very important man. He has a lot of servants. So he calls 10 of them together. And he gives them 10 minas. It doesn't matter right now what a mina is. It's just some kind of money. And he said to them, 
Here's his instructions before he leaves. Engage in business until I come. And as, as uh, unspiritual as that sounds, that is a retelling in parable form of the Great Commission. Engage in business until I come. It is a, is a retelling in parable form of go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So the nobleman says, here's a minor. Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him. Well, that's not good. So he already rules this area. Obviously, he's going to get a bigger kingdom. But his citizens don't like him. And they sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign after us. Perhaps they sent it after the, sent it to the same person he's appealing to for the kingdom and said, no, we don't want him. When he returned... Having received the kingdom, he was successful. He ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know he's getting a reckoning. He's getting an accounting. What did you do that he might know what they had gained by doing business? Verse 16, the first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. Now that's pretty awesome return on your investment. That's maximizing. If you can invest one of anything and get 10 back, Legally, <laughs> that, that's good. And he said, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. This guy's got a big kingdom, and he just gave him a lot of authority. And the second came, verse 18, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. Also a very good job. And he said to him, you are... To be over five cities. Verse 20. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina. Here's what you gave me. I'm giving it back to you. Which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. I know what sort of man you are. You don't just give out minas. You give it to and you expect more to come back. You don't. Plant the seed. You give us the seed, but we got to plant it. We've got to reap it, and we got to give you the increase. I know you're that way. Verse 22, and he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? You wouldn't have done as good as the other guys, but you would have done something. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him, give it to the one who has ten minas. And then he said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. This is not how we do redistribution of wealth here. Verse 26, I tell you, that without question, verse 26 is a principle of the kingdom that needs a lot more exploring. So that's something you can set your mind to meditating on at another time. But, but let's take it. We're drinking from a fire hose here. There's a lot in this parable. Verse 26, I tell you that everyone who has, to everyone who has more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, didn't want me to be their Lord, bring them here and slaughter them before me. 
Got to read that again. You might say, well, I've heard that he was gentle, Jesus, meek, and mild. That doesn't seem very meek. Just a few observations about the parable and then a few applications. Observation number one, God expects us to work with what he gives us until the Lord returns. That's the point of the parable. He's the nobleman. He's the nobleman. He's talking to guys who think he's going to clean up this mess right now and set up the kingdom of God. He's saying, no, I'm going away to a far country. I'm going to come back. I'm leaving you with your mina. Get to work. Till when? Till I get back. Jesus went to a cross. That's his next step. Not a throne on earth. It was a cross to die a shameful death to pay for their sins, to buy them, to ransom them, the Bible says, to redeem them, to get them back from Satan, to get them back from sin, to satisfy the anger of God. That was what he's going to do next. That's how he's buying his kingdom. The currency is his blood. The wealth is his citizens. And then he's going to go to the grave, and he's going to raise from the grave, defeating death for humans all who believe in him, and then he, ascend, he meets with his followers, gives them more orders, ascends to the right hand of God, where he sits and waits. Do you think of Jesus as waiting? I mean, he's very active, but he's waiting. For what? For the moment when his kingdom is put under his feet and he returns. In the meantime, he sends his Holy Spirit. His message is declared. More citizens from every generation are gathered And still the nobleman has not come back, but he will come back. And he will receive the kingdom that he's earned. This this is, uh, this parable, it flashes all through the New Testament and the Old. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do they plot a vain thing? They say, let us break God's fetters away from us. Let them fear my son, Psalm 2 says, who will come with a mighty rod and crush them. Kiss the king, kiss the son while he may be found. But it's also in 1 Corinthians 15, we see this. Paul's teaching, for as in Adam all die. What that means, if you are a son or a daughter of Adam, and that would be all of us, you die because of your sin. And that death is physical and spiritual. So also in Christ, all will be made alive. That doesn't mean all will get eternal life. It means all who are in Christ get eternal life. Adam, being a child of Adam, that's a privilege. We all end up dead. Being a child of God through Christ, you get eternal life. But that being made alive, that having a physical body that rose from the dead like Jesus, that doesn't happen all at once. Otherwise, when you got saved, it would have been an immediate... I'm quitting the gym. Look at me. You know, <laughs> you'd have your glorified body. It says, but each to his own order. Christ, the first fruits. Jesus is the first fruit. He's the tithe. He's the offering. He's the one who pops up from the ground. He died in a body. He raised in the body, but the body he raised in was qualitatively unmatched. Couldn't die. Couldn't hurt. It was a forever body. He's the first. Then. At his coming, those who belong to Christ. Everyone who knows Christ, when he returns, gets a new body. You might say, well, where do you go before that? Well, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Your spirit is with him if you die. But when he comes back, you receive a body glorified like his. You will live in that body forever in a place. A new earth forever. But that's when he returns. When the nobleman comes back. Then comes the end. 
when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. It's all a big story about government and who's in charge. Jesus comes back, I'm in charge of everything, and all this is for my Father. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. He is ruling, but also at work. What's that work look like? I'm not even sure. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. When the nobleman went away to a far country, Jesus ascended to heaven, and the person he went to get his kingdom from is God himself, and God says, I'm putting everything under you. At your name, every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess that you are Lord to my glory. And so God expects us to work until that happens. Until he returns, a steward is someone who works with what he's given. By the way, you can see already why coveting is such an evil sin. Coveting is constantly focusing on what someone else has given and worrying about what you do not have. Do you see how at odds that is with the truth of, of what's happening in the universe? God's saying, I don't want you to think about what you don't have. I want you to think about what I gave you and invest it. Second thing to observe here is when the Lord returns, everyone will be measured and rewarded according to what we did for him. Everyone will be measured and recorded and, and rewarded for what we did for him. Everyone. And, and, and as you'll notice in the, in the text, the kingdom of God knows no equity. Equity is a big deal to us. Things being equitable. Everyone's supposed to get the same. Mom, Johnny got a bigger piece than I did. He got more than I got. And you follow it all the way up the line. That's why there's lawyers who sue people all the time. They got your money. And that's why people vote for their politicians. They'll get you what's yours. It's all supposed to be fair. Well, none of that comes into the kingdom of God. If you think when Jesus comes, he's going to set up a system where everyone's the same. Wrong. It's nowhere in the Bible. It's nowhere in the Bible. No vision of the future has equitableness. Now, there's no poverty for anyone. There's no bad health for anyone. There's joy for everyone. But some are going to have more than others. And what do I do with that? I don't know. Tell a sinner that, and I think, well, I want more. But that's my sinful self. I know when I get there, I won't be coveting. Therefore, you having more will not only not bother me, I'll celebrate. I'll be like, yeah, you have more. Yes. I already know I get less than most of you. Because I stand up here and teach over and over and over. And I'm going to have to <laughs> be measured. You said this, 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 this. This is going to take a while. Angels are like sitting down. like <laughs> Me and just about every pastor is going to be way in the back. But I won't be unhappy. Nevertheless, the one who gets in this parable gets more. A hint of some sort of future reward. Uh, the, this is not the utopia of earth's whiners and socialists, is it? When the inequity, the inequity of the situation was pointed out in the parable, wait, give him the mina? What was the response from the king? I tell you, everyone who has more will be given, but to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is an affront to human sensibilities, any way you look at it. 
but it does hint at eternal joys and rewards. Faithful living, my friends, listen, faithful living at difficult times will be worth more than it costs. Faithful living at difficult times will be worth more than it costs. Resist Satan's lie, saying you've been ripped off, quit. You're not good enough, quit. Three, third observation. The ones who do nothing are not loyal to the king. You think, well, they're punished because they didn't work hard enough. No, that isn't the issue. Even in the parable, it's not the issue. The issue is the condition of their attitude toward their boss. The, tra- the, the most tragic figure is the one who hid the mina. <laughs> and another came saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you're a severe man. You take what you didn't deposit, you reap what you didn't sow. The king responds, I will condemn you with your own words. And then he says this, you wicked servant. It's a moral judgment. It's not because you tried and failed. It's because you're wicked. So you didn't use what I gave you for me at all. The man knew the system. He knew the system. He wasn't shocked. He told him, I know you gave me this so that I would give you something back. And in response, since you weren't here to watch me anyway, I just hid it. His inactivity was disobedience. It wasn't an option that he could have done something with it if he wanted to. It was disobedience to his king. Think about that. If the king allows this man and men like him into his kingdom, what sort of kingdom will he have? If you run a bank and hire thieves, what sort of bank will you have? C.S. Lewis, speaking of how society seems to have a lot of injustice, pointed out, he says, you laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in your midst. I'd say that to you, Americans. Why are you guys so shocked? If you take away the foundations, you should expect scoundrels to run everything. Well, in Jesus' kingdom, scoundrels aren't allowed in. Fourth observation. In the kingdom to come, only the good stewards remain. It goes with that other one, but it needs to be pointed out. The nobleman returns and cleans out his kingdom, leaving only good stewards as citizens. They're the only ones who remain. Verse 27. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Okay, this is, this is a parable, right? <laughs> so this, But it's a parable that points to a greater reality that's spoken of in many places in the Scripture. So let's just get this out of the way and get it straight. Those who do not serve the God who made them will spend eternity in hell. I know, it's not popular. Intelligent people don't believe in hell. But that won't change the temperature of hell one degree. If you do not want God to rule over you, you get to go to the place where none of his goodness is. He will not 
have a kingdom with people who are not loyal to him. He will have a kingdom of proven stewards. Now, I want you to catch this because I know I'm mostly talking to people who know and love God. Ready? The, the stewards are those who proved themselves when the king was away. Think about yourself now. Right now, think about yourself. It is easy to ignore an absent king. Right? It's easy to ignore an absent king. That's written in my notes. I only say that because on the way in, on some faraway radio station, somehow Chuck Swindoll was coming in. And I heard him say on the way in this morning that sinners sin and nothing happens and they think they're getting away with something. That was a great point. I'll, fit, I'll steal that from Swindoll. Because it's easy to ignore an absent king. So who doesn't ignore the absent king? Who doesn't ignore God when he's not here? Who stays faithful when it hurts? The ones who love him. Right? If you're not going to get slapped in the hand every time you do something wrong, who's going to stop doing things wrong? Someone who have a motivation other than fear of punishment. Are you getting that? Those who fear punishment, they think he's not doing nothing, I'm good. I ain't going to do nothing with what he gave me. I'm going to live my own life. He ain't going to do nothing. Hell's coming. Don't you scare me. You're fire and brimstone, you self-righteous preacher, you. You're a hypocrite. That's what they say. Ones who honor and fear the king, do you notice in this parable when he's absent, they serve him voluntarily? And obviously with great vigor. How about you? That's what you, that's your goal. And this is really, here's the heart of stewardship. This is the center, philosophically. This is what's behind everything. This is the moment, right here, that I'm about to say. You live in a place, and you live in a certain time, and your king is away. This is the point. Today, where you live, what you have, who you are, the king is away. He is absent. Those who serve him love him. Period. And they're known by their love. Those who are not loyal to him don't serve him. The king banishes non-citizens from his kingdom. That's hard. How could he do that? How could it be so unfair? Doesn't everyone have a right? Give that up now. Everything you have is a gift from God. Everything. Your life, everything. Everything. So now you're not owed heaven. In fact, let's be clear about this doctrine from the scripture. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? They're just, there's not going to be a special clause. There's not going to be a lawyer to get him in the last minute. There's not going to be some doctrine where you can work your way out. You're done. Revelation 21. To the one who conquers, he will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immorals, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And that's not a parable. You may have symbolism in there, 
but it's symbolism of a real thing. There will be, look, a great separation of souls is coming. So Jesus teaches on it a lot. A great dividing of wheat and chaff, of good fish from bad fish, of goats and sheep. The great separation of souls is coming, and the, the dividing line is who is a good steward of the king and who is a wicked servant? Those in hell for eternity misused God's property. You say, God's property? Wait a minute, they're not even Christians. I remember when I wasn't a Christian, I misused God's property all the time, but I wasn't really his yet. Oh no, it is true. When he buys you with his blood, when you receive him as Savior and get the forgiveness of sins, you are his in a special way because you've been adopted as a son or a daughter. You're now a member of the family. But even before you're a member of the family, he gave you what you have. In other words, when somebody uses their body to pimp out prostitutes, to embezzle money from their company, to sin in whatever way people can sin, they're really using Jesus' stuff to do it. They're using Jesus' body parts, Jesus' time, and Jesus' possessions because they all come from him. And you say, well, they didn't know. Oh, they know. That's hinted at in that parable very clearly. They know. They understand. God, you are a severe God. Everyone in the world knows he's severe. Everyone in the world knows. Look at their religions that we invent. They're always, God, don't kill me for my sin. Everyone knows, oh, we lie about it. We justify ourselves. Everyone knows that God is righteous. Everyone knows better. Everyone knows they should fear and obey but they misuse what belongs to Jesus anyway. No one goes to hell for any other thing, really. They're wicked servants. A couple of side notes. Don't get self-righteous. Never forget that he only saves wicked servants. He only saves sinners like me and you. He doesn't, you, didn't, you weren't more righteous than the next guy. But the second thing to note is all those prosperity preachers, you can see their lie now, can't you? Some sort of idea that you'll have more stuff if you please God. There's a lot of pimps with a lot of stuff. And drug dealers and greedy crooks in the corporate world. There's a lot of bad people who have a lot of stuff. You can be bad and get a lot of stuff. And you can be good and have very little stuff. We're in that time when the king is away. And it's difficult we got a lot of people in the kingdom say, I don't even want him to rule over us. Imagine working with those guys around. What are you doing? I'm investing this miner because he's coming back. You're a jerk. You're an idiot. We hate you. We hate him. We're trying to get rid of him. Salvation is free to us, but it's costly to our king. The miracle of God is that he causes you and I to trust him at all. That's the miracle of God. You hear the gospel that Jesus Christ died for sins and you actually believe it. That's a miracle for a sinful heart. God does that miracle through his spirit and he causes us to be born again and causes us really to be good stewards. Salvation is free but costly to our king. Again, to the, to the early note, 
You're not saved by being a good steward. Good stewardship simply reveals who you are. It just shows that you're a son. If there's ten guys standing there and someone's insulting one particular man and one of those persons is the son of that man being insulted, most likely he's going to be the one who says, wait a minute. Good stewards just reveal your your sonship or daughtership. The unsaved in this are described like this, but his citizens hated him. Their sin isn't lack of productivity. Their sin is hate of God. And they sent a delegation after saying, we don't want this man to reign over us, and that is what we do naturally. That's what sinners say. No, God, you will not tell me what to do. I want to do what I want to do. Well, I sent a preacher to tell you, all pastors are hypocrites. Well, I'll give you that one. But what you're really saying is I want to do what I want to do. And I'll just make a scoundrel out of anyone you send to tell me I ought to do differently. Okay, that's the parable. You ready for some application? What do we do now, Christians? Let me throw a few applications at you. First of all, Instead of whining about your working conditions, whistle while you work. I know, I just quoted uh, Snow White. Instead of whining about your working conditions, whistle while you work. Get those seven little dudes with the great big noses. All in love with one tall, beautiful woman who was nice, but they were never had a shot. This is like high school. I remember high school. But instead of whining about your working conditions, whistle while you work. Don't waste time complaining about the fallen world you live in. Stop it. Stop it. Just stop it. Stop listening. I'm telling you, stop listening to, to talk radio. That's not an order for your pastor. It's if you want wisdom, there it is. It just keeps you ticked off, self-righteous, and angry and complaining. It doesn't change anything. You're going to vote the same way. Go ahead and vote the same way. But listening to people 24-7 whining and complaining, and you'll join them. The king is away! Unsaved people don't fear the king! Duh! Get over it, quit whining, and whistle while you work. But it hurts so bad. I need more comforting sermons from you. I'll try. This is me comforting you. I know life hurts. We got each other. And we got the king. And he's away on business. And when he gets back, he sets things right. And he's watching everything. And your faithfulness in this difficult time will be rewarded and remembered way beyond what you will think you deserve. You'll come up and say, well, I got a few minas I made, and he's going to say, I'm going to put you over cities. And you're going to say, huh, I said a few minas. Do you see how generous God is? He's like, I don't, I'll reward a little faithfulness with a lot. We're, we're to be cheerful servants, not crybabies. God, no crybabies allowed. It's okay to be sad. There are times to be sad. It's a sad world. 
But come on, we all know the difference between being sad and building a house out of self-pity and living in it. Second application. Begin the habit today of praying for the Holy Spirit to instruct your work. I have a body, I have time, and I have possessions. None of them are mine. They're all given to me, every bit of them. You might at this point have realized nothing is yours, nothing is mine. So therefore, I'm supposed to steward everything. Well, how? I don't know how. I don't know about you, but I get up in the morning and go, hope I'm useful today. (laughs) I'm distracted by my old sin nature. I'm distracted by the weakness of my body. I'm distracted by a million things around me and thinking, I don't know if I can pull off anything good for the kingdom today. Who's with me on that? Well, we really were not left alone. Unlike in the parable where the nobleman went away and that was it, we have the Holy Spirit of the living God sent back to us to help us. So ask him. Ask God, the Holy Spirit, today, how can I bring a return on your investment in me? And take little things. Don't worry about the big stuff. Do very little things. He rewards big for little faith. And if you would, pray that for me too. I know it's selfish of me, but I need it. I'm opening the Bible to you. I could blow this thing. I probably do. Pray for me. John 16, 7. Here's the promise from our nobleman, our king. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. He said this to his apostles the night, before he, the night he was arrested. Now, I would think, no, it's not to our advantage. It would be nice to have, what don't you think it would be nice to have Jesus here so we could ask him questions? But you know what? It wouldn't be. You know why? Because if he's in the flesh and you get to, you're not going to ask him any questions. Because 10 million people will be in line in front of you. You'll die waiting with your question. But if I, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. The helper is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God, in spirit form living in us. Third is like the, well, actually fourth is like, the, let me reverse. No, I'm not going to reverse them. I'll keep them out of order. Third, begin the habit of being a thoroughly generous manager of your life. God is generous. God holds nothing back. Normally when we talk about stewardship, everyone expects we're going to talk about the tithe, the giving of the 10%. And we will next, next time because we have to because everyone knows what it is and it's, it's a big subject. But it's not the biggest deal. In fact, it's the smaller deal. The bigger deal is God is a generous God. And we are supposed to be generous people with our time, with our bodies, and with our possessions. When Jesus sent his 12 out, he sent them out. He was doing ministry, but he's a delegator, so he did it in front of them a long time. Then he empowered 12, and he said, now you go out and help me get my three-year ministry done. And he said this in Matthew 10, 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Things only he could do. He was giving them some power to do it. And that's important, but I don't want to really talk about that part. I want to talk about the principle he gave right then. He said, freely you've received, freely you give. If nothing you have is not anything except for what you've received, then what you received, you should be like your father and give it. You should have a generous spirit, a generous heart. Share the word of God first. There's nothing more valuable, nothing more valuable. Go to a funeral, you'll realize they leave all their stuff. 
But if they hear and believe, they live forever. Share your time. Share your time. Your time's your own. It's really God's. But you have to manage it. To, to, to get a return on the investment, at times you're going to have to do things with your time you don't want to do with your time for other people. Be generous. Give it away. There's, by the way, as far as I can see, there's nothing more valuable I have that I have control over than my time. Again, go to a funeral. It reminds you. The one thing you have that's valuable is time. Give it away. Share your love. Share your love. Share your love. That's just share your love. Share your possessions. Share them. You got two? Give to another. You don't always have to sell your used car. You could give someone a used car. You say, why would I do that? I have to do a means testing. Make sure they're poor enough and they've managed everything they do just like they're supposed to. Why? They need a car. Give them a car. Share your food. Some knocking at the door at dinner time. Act like we're not home. We only got four pork chops. <laughs> Let them in. Cut a fifth off of each pork chop and or fourth. I don't know how you work that math. Remember, we're not managing our self-supply. God did not give us our time, our bodies, and our possessions just so we'd have enough used up for ourselves when the time we die. He gave it to us to freely receive, freely give forth. This went with a second. I should have put them together, but it works either way. Ask the Holy Spirit's help to examine your life to find where you're being a poor student, a steward. Don't just ask him, how can I, how can I be a good steward? Say, where am I not? Where am I not? Holy Spirit, you can search my heart. I can't figure out my heart. I can pay psychoanalysts. They can't figure out my heart. We can all stare at my belly button together. None of us can figure out my heart. But you can. Nothing is hidden from the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Show me where I'm blowing this thing. Teach me to be a disciple every day. Fifth, and finally, if you've not signed up to be a good steward, you can do that today. If up till now you've lived your life for yourself and not for God, that is sin against God. It's disobedience against God and it's wickedness. But you can repent of that sin because there's time, if you're hearing this message, and Jesus Christ's blood was shed to take away your sin and he gave, let's, let's end this invitation to you to repent of sin and believe in Christ and join the stewards, join the family of God by pointing out that Jesus Christ is the most generous person of all. He gave his body, he gave his time, and he gives all he has. You say, wait a minute, he has everything, he's God. Certainly you're being extreme there. No, I'm not. Romans 8, 32. God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And not on this earth, necessarily. Everything you get is gracious, but wait till you get there. How do I know? Ephesians 2, 7 and 8. So that in the coming ages, we love Ephesians 2, 8. For grace, you've been saved through faith. But do we read 7? So that in the coming ages, as, as, as millennium goes into millennium, age into age into the future, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness. God has a plan for your life. Oh, people love to make fun of this when they say God has a wonderful plan for your life, but I like saying it because it is wonderful because 
for the centuries, into centuries, into centuries in your future, he has planned to continually display more and more and more and more of his riches in kindness aimed at you. And you might say, well, after a thousand years, won't I know it all? No, he's inexhaustible. And he shares completely everything with you. And you don't deserve it. And neither do I. That's why the rest of it says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God. Jesus gives. Yeah, Jesus saves. That makes a nice t-shirt. You could even put a fishing reel on there. And as my daughter says, you can catch Nemo and eat him. How about a shirt that says Jesus gives? I know speaking to the Christians, you love this message. You may or may not love me delivering it, but you love the idea. I know it. That makes me, it makes me so happy to be able to preach to people who I know want to be told by the word of God, give your life to Jesus. I know that. I I celebrate the grace of that. And there's no guilt. There's no, yeah, but. There's no but. What an honor we have to have time to be stewards of our Father and show His glory to the world. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.